Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, over the weekend, a state of emergency was declared in Ottawa after another protest was held against COVID-19 restrictions and mandates. How's the government going to handle this, and what's the end game? We'll discuss that. Do we need stronger leadership from the Prime Minister and the Premier of Ontario right now amid all these protests? Dr. Laurie Turnbull will join us to discuss that. And tensions continue to rise on the Russia-Ukraine border. We get the latest update from Dr. Oral Brown, a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There were protests all over the place. Of course, Ottawa continues, Quebec City, Toronto, and in Hamilton, there was a protest in support of anti-vaccine mandates uh, that took place uh, by the Hamilton City Hall. Global News' Diana Weeks was there, and here's what she has to say. The convoy, comprised mainly of cars and pickup trucks, started at around 11 a.m., headed from Stony Creek to City Hall. There were heavy traffic delays in the core as police shut down a portion of Main Street. Just before 3.30 on Saturday, police posted to Twitter saying the roads had reopened and the protest ended. Most supporters refused to speak with Global News, but we did manage to get an interview with the protest's organizer, Harvey Peterson, who said he was overwhelmed with the amount of support he received for the protest. It's all about our freedom of choice. That's the bottom line. No matter which government has to deal with it, federal, provincial, it doesn't matter to me. They, they, it's time. Like the, the science says it's time. Police have not reported any violence or arrests. Diana Weeks, Global News. Uh, thank you for that. If you follow Diana on Twitter, I, I, you probably heard some of the comments or read some of the comments that she made this past weekend about the abuse that she took, the verbal abuse. Uh, and rather threatening gestures that uh, she took from some of the people that were there, which is not uncommon. We've heard that from some of the other uh, towns that have been protested. But, of course, all eyes are on Ottawa. Many of the other uh, protests, uh, except for the one, of course, on the Alberta border, uh, have pretty much they've gone back to work, I suppose. But Ottawa con- continues to be a major problem here. We know over the weekend, of course, that Ottawa Mayor uh, Jim Watson declared a state of emergency. How are they going to handle this? And and what, what's the end game here? To talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Phil Gursky. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, also the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program. I want to see how that's going. And a former CSIS analyst and author, of course, his latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, uh, The History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to President. Uh, it's a good book. Check it out sometime. Phil, welcome back. Great to have you with us today. How was your weekend? <laughs> Well, mine was quiet, Bill. Um, I have the lucky, uh, I guess, fortune of being a fair bit outside of Ottawa these days, living in Russell, which is about 50 kilometers south of town. So I don't hear the honking horns. I don't have to deal with the gridlock. And uh, I can just live up my retirement in a small village so far. (laughs) So far, so good. Anyway, the people downtown, not so lucky uh, because of the things that have gone on. uh, Let's start with your perspective and and your reaction, what you've seen over the last, uh, well, almost a week now. I guess it has been a week in Ottawa. Yeah, you know, Bill, this has been all over the map in terms of people's reaction. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I wrote I wrote an op-ed piece for, for Post Media in which I said, you know, whatever this is, and it can be many things to many people, it's not an act of terrorism and the truckers aren't terrorists. And this is what some people are using that term, and I think it's an inaccurate term. But from my, from my perspective, obviously the frustration is growing. These people apparently had a point to make. I think they've made their point. Uh, it's definitely... Um, it's uprooting people in downtown Ottawa. There, you mentioned in your earlier your earlier comments that you know some threatening gestures have been made, some language has been used. No violence per se has taken place, to the best of my knowledge. A lot of very rude behavior. The fear is it might get worse. 
I don't know that it will, but obviously, um, you know, huge police force. You talked about the mayor uh, state, um, declaring a state of emergency. Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly saying he doesn't have resources to deal with this. It just seems to be a stalemate right now. And how long that stalemate can continue is a really good question. I don't have an answer to that just yet. I'm just ca- cautiously optimistic that we can we can bring an end to this in a peaceful fashion. Yeah, let's. I want to concentrate on that word because this is what I hear from and see on a lot of the social media posts from some of the protesters or supporter of these protesters. Uh, this is just a peaceful protest. Well, five others arrested, six people arrested last night alone by Ottawa police, uh, in, including for taking uh, fuel, by the way, which they said they were going to do. If you're trying to, if you're aiding and abetting, I guess you're going to get arrested for this. Uh, but there are a number of other ongoing investigations, they say, about uh, possible illegal behavior that's going on, too. So I, I, I'd question the use of the word peaceful here. Uh, it may be sporadic, nonetheless, but, uh, you know, I, I also have saw, seen some of the comments of some of the residents who live downtown, some of the businesses who live downtown who are intimidated by this. I, I know that two of the major churches in the downtown area uh, told their congregations, don't come here tonight. It's not safe. So there was no Sunday service at either one of those right now. Uh, it's not business as usual. And if I, I agree, they're not terrorists, but what kind of a label do you put on this this sort of, uh, of occupation of a, of a city? <laughs> Great questions as usual, Bill. I, and I think it's a real dog's breakfast of actors. I think that Whatever the initial intent was of the truckers, the the 18-wheel truckers themselves to make a point about the vaccine mandates, about crossing the border, etc. That may still be their intent. The the problem is, as you are well aware, there have been a lot of hangers-on that have used this opportunity. And there's definitely been some very hateful people, some racists, uh, some people who have other points to make. potentially ones who could carry out acts of violence. And I do stress potential because we haven't seen that level yet. There's no question that they're they're rude at a minimum. Um, they're intimidating. And I can understand why people are saying, don't come here, don't open the churches, don't go to businesses kind of thing. I, I just, and I, I'm not trying to be facetious here, Bill, but you know, I, I think the biggest problem we're having here with in trying to label this thing is that you can't stick a label because it's so varied in terms of the participants and I think there are, there are some people who legitimately ask the question, at what point does legitimate protest go merge into illegal activity? I think in some cases we're already there, but it, it opens up an interesting question as to what are we willing to put up with as a, as a liberal, secular, democratic society? And, and, and for the record, Bill, I, I don't support these protesters in any way, shape or form. I'm not trying to be academic on it because I'm not an academic, but I think that the, this is really complicated. And I, and I think trying to oversimplify gets us into deeper water, actually. Well, yeah, that's it. And and you're right. I mean, the, it's not a one size fits all. I get that. And, and you know, I think we mentioned that right from the outset. Uh, I'm sure there are some people that started this whole thing uh, over a week ago now that sincerely had some concerns about this and, you know, about the mandate, the, the vaccine mandate for truckers. Mind you, as also we've been reporting, of course, the, but the trucking associations, and there are a few of them across the country, I uh, don't endorse this. And uh, I mentioned in my commentary early this morning that I had occasion to uh, do a lot of driving in southern Ontario this past weekend over the highways and byways and visiting some communities. And I saw lots and lots of trucks, too. But they were working. They weren't protesting. Uh, they were delivering goods. So this is this isn't I don't want to say it's an isolated incident, but this these people do not speak for the majority of people in this industry. Uh, we're all sick and tired of COVID. We're all sick and tired of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. But do you really think that setting up what, the, what they've set up here in Ottawa is, is going to move mountains or change government policy? No, it's completely counterproductive. I, I 100% agree with you. The vast majority of people in Canada, like you, uh, Bill, I'm completely frustrated 
with COVID. Uh, my wife and I went out for dinner for the first time in months last week in a small town called Manatech near where we live. And we loved it. We actually got out to go to a restaurant. I mean, how, how, is, how unique is this in 2022? Yeah. Nobody's happy with the situation. And I think that whatever's happening in Ottawa now and to a lesser extent in other cities is completely counterproductive. And yes, they're getting support from some areas. You've probably heard the big Go, GoFundMe controversy about people sending money to them. But I think they're definitely on the wrong side in terms of public support. And the longer this lasts, the, the more that support is going to ebb and they're going to find themselves more and more isolated. On the other hand, there are those from the more extreme factions who may in fact start to lend support because they want to do whatever the majority is not doing. So, yeah, you know, Bill, the more that this thing, I guess, lasts, the more it sort of pans out. I'm not sure where it's all going to end. And and the, the as the frustration levels increase, that's where I begin to get worried that people will act in, in very silly, unwarranted, unnecessary ways to act on that frustration. And there's no question that tempers have reached a boiling point on both sides. And that's never a good situation wherever you are. And, and you saw those reports over the weekend. I know that's one of the concerns that uh, the chief of police slowly was talking about is uh, is counter protests, uh, and they're starting to be more and more of them, and they're getting just as vocal too. You know, get out of our town. These these sorts of things. And and you're right. I mean, you don't want anything to ignite something like that. But I, I guess what part of the concern here that I'm sure the police are, are trying to deal with right now, and certainly, uh, well, even the mayor, and I understand the frustration in situations like this. Uh, when you see what happened, for instance, this past weekend in Ottawa. And you've seen the reports on this, Phil. Uh, partying all night Saturday, of course, the horn hawking with the trucks, that, that's one thing. Uh, but, you know, partying around the streets of Ottawa, they're actually setting up saunas. And as you saw, they're building huts along the, the shores of the Rideau Canal, yeah. uh, which means they're, you're not supposed to do that in this city or that city or any other city, for that matter. Uh, that's the sort of thing that people just think, you're not protesting here at all. You're just being a pain in the butt. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I want to... I wanna... To talk about one thing, Bill, you talked about the police response, and there's been a lot of criticism about Ottawa police and, and Chief Slowly about not taking action sooner. First of all, I, I, I never worked in law enforcement, Bill. I don't know if you did, but I'm rather loath to criticize industries in which I've never worked. So I, I'd rather hear from, you know, I've talked to Charles Bordelow, who's the ex-chief ex, um, of police in Ottawa, and he has some interesting yep. thoughts on this. this. This is a very delicate situation in that the police response has to be very carefully measured because... If it's anywhere outside of perfect, chances are things will go very, very badly. And you know as well as I do, Bill, the, pe- the police will be criticized for doing too much and, and for doing not enough. They're in a very, very, I think, precarious situation right now. They can apply the law, absolutely. You know, these huts are illegal. They can take them down. They can issue tickets. And, and they already are doing that. But I think any other more forceful show of strength by the police could in fact reverberate in very negative ways. So they've got to do this on a, on a constant, they're there 24 seven, Bill. They're monitoring the situation, trying to gauge the level of people's emotions to try to figure out what's the best way out of this thing that doesn't end up in, in acts of violence or bloodshed or, or heaven forbid people getting injured or killed. Because once that happens, then I mean, all bets are off in terms of where this is going. Yeah, and I've, I've talked to a number of people, both who are current officers and, and people that have served in police services around the country over the last week, as you might expect, Phil. And and that's the the gist of what we're saying. I mean, you know, anybody who's who's suggesting that what Ottawa police are better, you know, if they, if they want them to show up tonight, you know, with batons and and the shields and just start busting up the crowd, that's that's not policing. Uh, and I know that's what happened in Washington, you know, on January sixth of last year. But that's because there was an, an immediate security threat. You know, once they storm that building and put people's lives in in danger, you've got to respond accordingly. And I'm sure that Ottawa police will do that if God forbid something like that should happen. 
But the essence of what I'm hearing from, from law enforcement officers is their job right there is to contain and control, not to, to overwhelm. Uh, and you just can't do that because, as you say, you're going to create a worse scenario uh, and, and confrontation. And who knows where that's going to lead? The other thing you raised, Bill, which is interesting, is, is this notion of national security. And in all honesty, the way that I see it, and you know, I worked in counterterrorism for a long time yeah. with CSIS. This is not a national security issue, not yet. This is a public safety issue in the sense that if people of the public are in danger because of the convoy, because of inability to get to doctors or to hospitals, things like that, that's a public safety issue. It's not national security writ large. Yes, it's happening in Ottawa, which is the national capital, but we're not talking about something which has national scope in a sense that, you know, I've heard people say, well, they're going to overthrow the government. Yeah, anything's possible, but I highly, highly doubt that A, that's the intention, or B, that even they, they could do it if they tried. Most of these guys couldn't organize a, you know, a drunk up in a bar kind of thing. They're not going to be taking over parliament and installing a new government. So I, I think the rhetoric on both sides has to come down a little bit. I've heard, you know, and we've, and we've talked about this, I've heard counselors call them terrorists. They're not terrorists. Calling somebody a terrorist does not help the situation, actually makes it quite, quite worse. I don't know, Bill. I mean, I, I'd love to come on your show and say, that, you know, if we did just, just an X, Y, or Z, this would come to a close. I think police are going to probably take a, a little stronger position in maybe preventing more people from joining. That's happened on the weekend yeah. by putting up roadblocks or by turning people away. My understanding is that the the rally in Toronto was pretty well mopped up in a couple of hours. There's one in Hamilton, I understand as well. So obviously other cities have dealt with it differently. Maybe they've learned from Ottawa's experiences. I don't know. It's it, I don't want to do the Monday morning, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking on this kind of thing, but you know, you're always adopting your strategies and, and your the way that you look at things as more information comes in. The other thing, very quickly, Bill, that really kind of got me going is someone saying this is a failure of intelligence. Um, how was this a failure of intelligence? Can you please someone please walk me through that? Because this is not a failure of intelligence in the sense that, you know, we didn't know it was going to happen and we didn't act upon it. Anyhow, you know, Bill, it's a very complicated thing. As I said, I hate to repeat myself, but it's important to sort of maintain an even keel in our analysis as well, not to overanalyze and not to underanalyze at the same time, because this is a very, very moving target, I guess. And and as I guess with a lot of these protests, what's happened here, Phil, is, is the message, if in fact there was one here, has long since been lost through all the other activities that have gone on, uh, you know, but about vaccinations and things of this nature. I know, and that's some people are protesting. I understand that. Uh, and it had nothing at all to do with truckers. They're just anti-vaxxers or they, they don't believe in government control. Uh, and, and that's fine. That's you, you and I talked about this in the past. Every time somebody holds up a protest sign, you're going to attract that crowd because they're just going to figure, hey, great, you know, let's 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 protest this too. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm, I'm my sympathy right now is for the people of Ottawa that are being held hostage here that that can't open their shops or that are afraid to walk. I mean, you've seen some of the posts on social media uh, wanting to head to the grocery store. Can somebody walk with me because I'm afraid to go past the downtown area? That's that's not what we should be doing here in Canada. So. I don't have the answers to this, too. If, if I did, I'd be calling Mayor Watson right now and saying, hey, Jim, here's what, here's what you need to do. Uh, but, you know, I, didn't, I, just, I just I'm concerned about how this is going to wear. I, I mean, some of them have already gone home because, you know, OK, that was it the week and they have to get back to their jobs or their families or whatever the case might be. I'm just worried about what's going to happen here in the long run. And I'm sharing your concern, too. I don't want to see this thing all of a sudden blow up and, and, and get into a really, really ugly situation. You're right. A lot of people have gone home. The problem, I think, Bill, is that, you know, if, if we want to actually negotiate an end to this, it's not clear with whom the police would negotiate. Yes, there were leaders. Per, I think there were leaders for the trucking convoy or self-styled leaders, self-appointed leaders. But for the other hangers on, we talked about some of the, the hate-filled people. They're just on their own. And there's no leadership to that. 
So it's far from clear, who would you talk to? And if they're just individuals, they're not gonna listen to you anyway. They're there for, for, for nefarious purposes to begin with. And they don't care what you think and what you say. Those people will be almost impossible to talk down because they, there's no talking to be had with those, with those individuals. That's what complicates things. If the, if the truckers decided at noon today, Bill, to, you know, to reverse their trucks, shut off the horns and go home, you're still left with those other individuals have nothing to do with the trucking association. Don't even drive a truck for a living, but just want to make uh, make trouble for downtown Ottawa. And I'm with you, by the way. I don't live in Ottawa anymore, but I certainly feel really, really for the people in the core that can't get to work, can't get to the grocery store. They feel afraid. They don't like the hate around them. And and yeah, I, this thing has to end. How it ends, that's the $64,000 question. Certainly is. Uh, Phil, always great to get you on the program and get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Have a good one. You betcha. Stay well. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threaten Risk Consulting, uh, former uh, CSIS analyst, of course, and uh, now the director of University of Ottawa Security Program. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The protest is happening in Ottawa. We should also mention, by the way, that that uh, injunction, uh, the debate about that anyway, is going to be on co- in court uh, probably sometime this afternoon. Uh, it's a private citizen uh, starting a class action suit. And, and among many things that are going to be argued and debated, uh, as to whether or not they can file an, at least a temporary injunction anyway, and ultimately uh, sue some of the organizers. That's an interesting twist. And as soon as we get word from the, uh, that Ottawa courtroom, we'll certainly pass that on. Uh, but there was politics involved in this. Isn't there always politics involved in this with a number of uh, conservative uh, MPs, including uh, Candace Bergen, the interim leader, offering support for the protesters? And uh, so is Pierre Polyev. As a matter of fact, uh, he also has been the first one to throw his hat into the ring to be the uh, leader of the Conservative Party. Stephanie Taylor has details. Pauly have announced his bid for party leadership in a video posted to social media. In it, he doesn't mention the Conservative Party or the leadership contest. He says only that he wants a job as Prime Minister. Despite the 42-year-old's reputation as a fiery performer in the House of Commons, Polyev calmly delivers his message that he wants to make, quote, Canadians the freest people on earth. He announced his bid before the party has even set the rules for the race, which means he can't begin to fundraise. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, let's begin there. I, I, I want to talk about some of the political ramifications of the, of the protest in Ottawa, too. But uh, we'll get to the leadership, first of all, and to uh, do all of this. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. Let's, let's begin with Pierre Polyev. Uh, to nobody's surprise, of course, he's the first one to declare his candidacy, although uh, nominations aren't even open for that yet. Uh, what's your read on this? You and I talked about this briefly when, when Aaron O'Toole was uh, about to be dismissed, shall we say, uh, mm-hmm. by his caucus. Uh, Polyev has been looking for this job. He's been maneuvering for this job for quite a long time. Not the first time he's tried to seek it. Is, is the third time the charm? Hmm. I wonder, like, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, out of the gate, right? Like he's let it be known that this is what he wants to do. And I think he's announcing early in the hopes that he deters others, you know, who aren't as organized, who haven't been floating this trial balloon as long, and maybe who don't have as much of a shot at winning. He's kind of, you know, laid it down, like he's, he's going for this. And there's already, you know, quite a few members of the caucus who have indicated that they're interested in that they were hoping he'd run. Um, I mean, I think he's got a decent shot. I do think the party needs a real race. They need, you know, the, the idea that somebody might be able to make this a foregone conclusion. And I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not trying to rush to that conclusion. I'm just saying, I hope that this doesn't deter other people who have different ideas for coming forward, because as we can see, the conservatives are so divided 
that if it's going to be a viable political party, there needs to be some conversation that's transformative and everybody needs to be heard and they need to build on things that they have in common to see which way, you know, this thing is going to go. And so I hope, you know, that we still see some, some really strong candidates come out. Is there going to be a discussion and a debate when they finally get around to actually having the race mm. about the heart and soul of the, uh, and the minds of, of, of the Canadian voters? I mean, to try to appeal to them, I mean, Pierre Polyev obviously is going to appeal to the to the right side of this, not the extreme right necessarily, uh, but you know what his politics are and you know what his style is like, and and uh, and he can be rather truculent when it comes to some of these issues. Uh, there are others that saying, well, you know, we need something a little more moderate if we ever want to win an election. Aaron O'Toole wasn't that guy. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of people left, at least in that caucus, that that even fought, qualify as quote unquote moderate. That's it. And I mean, even to pick up on the point on Aaron O'Toole, like it seemed like he couldn't, you know, he he just couldn't get it right. Like he couldn't couldn't make the party happy if he was coming too much from the right. People weren't happy if he was coming too too much to the center. People weren't happy. And I think the party has to see that in some ways as the result of the party and the, sh- the position that the party is in. You know, you can absolutely come up with a list of things that Aaron O'Toole ought to have done better. But the the fact remains that the party itself is really at the heart of why his leadership didn't work out. There was no way he could pull together all the different factions of the party when they want totally different things. And as you say, you know, if the conservatives want to lean to the right and be true to those values, and if there's a kind of mobilization around and a momentum behind that, that's one thing, but they're not going to win an election like that. You know, like who's, you know, if somebody is a problem if there's an ident- if there's a person out there who you think yeah that person's conservative that person could beat Justin Trudeau that cur- person could win an election but there's no way he'll win the leadership like if that's the truth right then the party has a fundamental problem unless it wants to be a voice of the right that sits in the house of commons and has some effect but never holds government and therein lies the problem. I, I talked with a conservative insider a couple of days ago, who's officially not, but, but you know, knows a lot of the, the history of the party and been there for a number of the conventions. Uh, and that, that's essentially what he told me. He says, you know, we've been running the last number of elections saying, hey, I'm not Justin Trudeau, vote for me. Uh, and, you know, because let's face it, the, the prime minister does not have the most uh, uh, illustrious, uh, you know, popularity numbers here in the country for a whole mm-hmm. lot of reasons. Uh, he's always trailing and in, in when it comes to those sorts of things it seems uh but he's won the last three elections uh, I, I mean yeah. he beat Stephen Harper I, they thought Andrew Shear was the guy hey I'm not just a Trudeau vote for me didn't work Aaron O'Toole tried the same tact in the last election it didn't work I mean they're going to have to come up with something substantive uh, to win the hearts and minds of Canadian voters instead, instead of simply saying we're not those guys oh I think you're right and I mean it, it pays, I think, to look back, you know, historically at how we get to these situations. When Justin Trudeau won the election in 2015, there were so many factors that kind of worked in his favor at the time, right? Like people were tired of, of Stephen Harper. It was time for a change in government. Somewhere through about halfway through the campaign, people, you know, the, the anybody but Harper crowd, you know, decidedly shifted to Trudeau instead of Tom Mulcair. And then he just picked up steam every day of the campaign. And it was, that was the long campaign. It was a 78 day campaign. Mm-hmm. Trudeau's a fantastic campaigner. He doesn't run out of energy. He loves this stuff. And so the longer the campaign went on, the more support he got. But at the end of the day, he only came in around 39%. And so the conservatives can continue to hold their base and the NDP held enough that, you know, the liberals got a majority. Sure. But they, it wasn't like a big slam dunk kind of thing. And you're right. His, his popularity 
on a personal level and in terms of, you know, lots of other measures too, like in terms of policy and things like that, it keeps coming down. And I think Nick Nanos had a poll this weekend. It's as, he's as low in the polls as he's ever been. And yet the conservatives, it's not clear that they're going to be able to turn it into a win for them. Now, the fact that Trudeau would be going to the polls asking for a fourth term is a bit of a, a game changer for the conservatives and that, you know, maybe Polyev didn't think, you know, when Andrew Scheer took this job, even when O'Toole took this job, that becoming prime minister was really as possible as it is now. But, you know, if the conservatives are going to win ever, you'd think they'd have to, they're, they're going to do it when Trudeau goes asking for a fourth term. Now, he may not. The liberals may have a new leader by then. So, that's an interesting twist to it too. Like the conservatives are, maybe if the conservatives are trying to figure out who among them could beat Trudeau, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe Trudeau will step aside by then. Well, that's interesting, the dynamic. I mean, because there's a lot of speculation, of course, when Andrew Scheer won the conservative leadership, because uh, the, the story there was that a lot of the heavy hitters and the, the you know the people that we thought were going to run didn't. And yeah. they were probably under the illusion, the, the possibility, well, I can't be Trudeau, so I don't want to be the opposition leader. So they, they decided to take a pass. Now, some of them came back and, and ran, of course, uh, in the uh, in the other race, including Peter McKay, but I'm wondering if the reverse is going to happen now. When you see the disarray in the Conservative Party right now, and they'll deny that, but it's there. Does Trudeau reassess his situation and say, "I, I think I am going to stick around"? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, because I mean, I think obviously we know this. What he was hoping for was that he was going to go to that election this summer, get a majority, have a clear four years. But I mean that didn't happen. And I, I don't get the sense from him, like not, you know, by, by watching him, by hearing him, by, you know, what he's doing on a policy, on the policy side, I don't get the impression that he wants to walk away anytime soon. And there doesn't seem to be, um, you know, there's always a flutter of, of conversation around when is he going to walk away and is there support for Freeland and that sort of thing. But I mean, you don't see it taking off in any big, in, you know, with any kind of real steam. So maybe he will stick around. And I suspect if he's, if he continues to look at a kind of broken opposition in some ways, like, why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he go for that majority if he can get it? It's hard. I think it's hard to ask powerful people to give it up if they think they can still hold on to it. Is there a dark horse anywhere? I mean, we've heard the usual names in caucus and Polyev, of course, being one of them. Lewis is, is there. Uh, uh, Candace Bergen obviously is not going to be the, in, involved in that since she's the interim leader right now. Uh, her with the MAGA hat and pretty much mm. identifying where she is on when it comes to policy. Uh, but, you know, who else? I mean, you know, I'm just trying to think if there's somebody else out there that people might say, well, I'd never thought of that individual. Yeah, that's a good point. And like a few people who I think would have been really um, strong, had a really strong presence, whether they won or not, like people like Rana Ambrose, like James Moore, John Baird, um, they've all said they're not doing it. And so it leaves open the possibility that somebody who's, who is maybe an up and comer, somebody who's not as well known might kind of come in and try to build something. But I, the, there's a couple of things that make that difficult. One is the timeline. They really want to do this quickly. And I understand that because there's a minority government and you don't want to get caught off guard. But um, it makes it more difficult for anybody new or anybody who's who needs a little time to build their, their reputation, their policy platform, supporters, that kind of thing, money. It's harder. And I think if the fact that Polyev has already come out of the gate and there's already caucus support for him, it's harder for a, a real kind of newbie to come into it because it's really help, helpful to get those caucus endorsements. Now, Peter McKay had lots of caucus endor endorsements and that yeah. didn't work out well for him. So not a, not a slam dunk, obviously, but it helps. I just mentioned Candace Bergen. If I could, like, I want to circle back uh, uh, to pol the politics of what's going on in Ottawa these days with the the, the protests and the ongoing protests. 
there's a, a hue and cry. I'm sure you've certainly read about this. I certainly haven't got an earful from a lot of people that the political leaders are letting them down, that they have to be out there. They should be meeting with the protesters. Uh, well, some of them are. Paul Evan and Candace Bergen, of course, have, have been very supportive, vocally supportive, as some other members of the Conservative Caucus. Uh, others have, have been very you know, damning about this, especially some of the, the, the Liberal cabinet ministers right now. Anita Anand basically saying that the Army's not going in, the Army's not a police force. They're going to have to set, settle this on a local level. But mm-hmm. should we be expecting more from, from our political leaders when it comes to a, it's a crisis situation. It's, you know, let's face it, they've, they've basically taken over a city, at least the downtown core of a city right now. And that's not supposed to happen in this country. Uh, should we expect more from a prime minister and the Ontario premier to, to be involved in this? Yeah, I mean, from the vantage point of Nova Scotia, uh, Premier Tim Houston um, took took the part of the Emergencies Act that gives gives permission to sort of shut down anything that any protest that blocks a, a, a road, right? Like, and so, like in Nova Scotia, there has been that measure taken from the outset. There was a, I mean, Halifax. There was a protest here this weekend, and but I shouldn't even say a, it was a protest. I guess like it was, you know, cars driving around, but not holding anything up, not um, you yeah. know, just just kind of making noise, drawing attention, that kind of thing. It was it was certainly peaceful, um, you know, and people knew it was there. Uh, so, I mean, it's an example of something that that perhaps <laughs> Doug Ford could be doing, but is not. He has been incredibly quiet about this. Occasionally, you see a little message or a tweet or, you know, something from him, but he has not been front and center. He's been the opposite of that. It's almost like you don't even know if he knows about it. He's He hasn't been attentive to it at all, it seems. And Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, um, with respect, he sounds like he's a citizen of Ottawa. He sounds like he's got no more power over this than I do, which is really frustrating when you listen to it. And the prime minister, I mean, he was he was diagnosed with COVID. I forget how many days now, but it's over a week. Surely he's fine and he's going to want to come back to work. But the security situation is that the prime minister can't go to his office. He can't even go to his house. Like this is, I can't imagine that this is going to continue for, for you know, much longer without people really being like, where where is the prime minister? Now, on the one hand, um, very interesting that there's leaks from the Conservative caucus already, right? Like this, you know, whatever um, honeymoon period Candace Bergen may have had gone, you know, like right away, there's leaks coming out on a daily basis. And so we know that, um, you know, there's people in the party who have, who have serious issues with how things are being handled, but we know from what they're, they're leaking that Candace Bergen wants to put this at the door of the prime minister. Right. So like, almost yeah. like, yeah, let's, um, you know, keep, keep plucking this thread in the hopes that he keeps looking weak. I don't think that strategy is going to pan out for the conservatives. Uh, it looks like they are, you know, plucking, at least some of them are plucking these threads you know, for the purposes of political gain. Now, the prime minister, on the other hand, like I'm sure we will hear from him this week, but just the the optics and the reality of the prime minister phoning into question period on, you know, and because I'm assuming his COVID is resolved now because the, of the security situation is just really hard to fathom. And, and I don't know that it's changed a whole lot of people's opinions. It may have polarized them and, and, and solidified them, but I mean, <laughs> Let's face it. There's an awful lot of people in this protest in Ottawa right now that they're 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 because they hate Justin Trudeau, uh, but they hated him before the 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 mandatory vaccine policy. They hated him, and they'll hate him after that. I mean, they just hate the guy for a whole lot of reasons, uh, and some of them just don't like government intervention about anything. So that that's that one element, and I guess there's still probably a handful of people in you know in trucks that are looking for some answers here. But if you were say, okay, I'm going out there to talk to those people, you know, like we see in some of the movies, the confrontation. Who do you talk to? Who are the leaders of this? Uh, and I mean, you know, this 
it's it's not as simple as that. They, they, you know, you can go out there and address the crowd, and you know, and, and even if they acquiesced, I mean, they, you know, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, if if the prime minister were all of a sudden change paths today and say, okay, I'm 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 lifting the mandate, these people still can't get across the border uh, because of the U.S. regulations that are in place. So I'm wondering, you know, just what are you there for, and what are you asking for? They're not very clear about that. They just are they there for the sake of protesting? Well, that's it. I know. I mean, in in the beginning, as you as we know, right, it started out as um, essentially about truckers being resistant to the vaccine mandates. But as you point out, it wouldn't matter even if we change that. The U.S. isn't going to change it, and so it wouldn't give it, you know it wouldn't bring anybody any further ahead. But it is not really. I don't think about that at all anymore. It's all, as you say, about anti-government, anti-Trudeau. The the asks seem to be insurrectionists right it's we want you to we want the governor general to replace the government with us i don't know who us is there doesn't seem to be a kind of you know someone at the head of it all who has some control over the crowd right like so if if and this will not happen but if justin trudeau came out and said okay we'll give you these things if you can you know and and then you'll you'll end the occupation it doesn't seem like anybody even has that much control over it and they're never going to get the, you know, the the insurrectionist demands will never be met. None of the COVID restrictions are going to end because of this occupation. And so it does have the feel that this is a this is something that just doesn't really have an end point to it, which is kind of, you know, unfortunately what the police seem to be saying is too, too there's no end in sight. That's not acceptable. And so in order to, I mean, I know the, the cops have kind of ramped things up now and there've been arrests and they've, they've taken down the thing that was built in Confederation Park. And so they're trying to get somewhere. And I assume that will continue to intensify until it is resolved somehow. But it, it's true. Like there doesn't seem to be a, a, a kind of chief you know, person to negotiate with. And there doesn't seem to be key demands that if they were met, this would be over. And, and I know we're just about out of time here, but uh, there is one thing that we can absolutely positively tell these people. The government's not going to resign. I mean, that was, a, you know, it yeah. lists that as one of the demands. It, it tells, first of all, they don't know a whole lot about the Constitution in this country or the reality yeah. of it. The government's never going to resign because of public pressure like this. I, I don't know where they, they, so you better learn to deal with this and to, and, and to talk about this. And uh, and I agree with you totally. I mean, you know, I mentioned they, they are going to lift the restrictions, uh, but they'll do it when the, there are medical uh, qualifications met that, that will lead them to do that. And they're not going to do it a minute before that. I mean, you know, notwithstanding what Jason Kenney and Scott Moe are doing right now, they were never much yeah. in favor of this, the COVID protocol anyway. So I'm not surprised at them at all. Uh, and it's not working for Jason Kenney anyway. They're still blocking the border in Alberta. So, you know, the yeah. politicians, there's no win here for anybody. Oh, I agree 100%. And I mean, in terms of leadership, we've been talking about Trudeau and Ford and, and you know, the mayor Jim Watson, but opposition leaders have a, like have leadership too, right? Like we also expect leadership just because you're not the prime minister or premier doesn't mean that you don't have responsibilities to take your leadership seriously. And I think we like one thing that has happened because of this occupation existing at this particular point is that it really, really, you know, brings to light the differences that are dividing the conservative movement at this point, because as we know, you know, like the, the party is very divided and they will try to smooth over it, which makes sense, right? Like a lot of conservatives will say, no, no, everything's sure. good. You know, I'm going to see here. Well, they can't say that now because there are people like, you know, Dennis Patterson saying, I want nothing to do with any of this. I'm out. And then other people clearly, um, 
you know, almost participating in the demonstrations themselves, having your picture taken and everything else. And so there's no way you can paper over that. And so we'll see, you know, whether the, what, what, you know, version of the conservative party comes out of this. Because at the, at the beginning, when Aaron O'Toole was, was um, you know, pushed out last week, when you were looking at that kind of in an historical way, I found, you know, there were lots of events that led up to that. There were, you know, from the, the moment of the election night, when you realized that he wasn't winning, that was, a, there was a push for him to leave. But now when you look at it in retrospect, and you see the, the approach that Candace Bergen and the people around her have taken, it's almost like it wasn't necessarily about that. It's almost like the social conservative wing of the party has now gained quite, they, they've taken the reins now. They've pushed Aaron O'Toole out, and this is the face of the party, which, you know, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out in the next few weeks. <laughs> well, it, and it's a fluid situation. We'll see how it develops. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of concern over the last couple of weeks, especially with Ukraine. And, well, we know about the Russian troops amassing along the border and uh, the discussions between uh, President Biden and uh, other NATO members about what's going to be happening and, and the pleas, frankly, from Ukraine for support in situations like this. Well, uh, over the weekend, the White House says a Russian invasion of Ukraine could happen, quote, unquote, any day. Ben Thomas has details. We are in the window. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Fox News Sunday. Any day now, Russia could take military action against Ukraine, or it could be a couple of weeks from now, or Russia could choose to take the diplomatic path instead. U.S. officials confirm Russia has assembled at least 70% of the military firepower it likely intends to have in place to give President Vladimir Putin the option of launching a full-scale invasion. But Sullivan says... If war breaks out, it will come at an enormous human cost to Ukraine. But we believe that based on our preparations and our response, it will come at a strategic cost to Russia as well. Ben Thomas, Washington. Interesting language from the White House about this, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the request, the ask from, from Ukraine here is, is for military assistance and, and, and weaponry. Uh, Canada has responded with cash, of course, and 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 uh, some work to do with uh, cyber crimes and things of this nature and some of the spying that goes on. Uh, but they're looking for, well, basically stuff that to, to defend their country. Now, having said that, uh, notwithstanding what's going on in the White House and the comments from the White House about an imminent invasion, uh, Ukraine doesn't seem to think it's, it's that imminent. Uh, I don't know if that's wishful thinking or if uh, behind closed doors they're very concerned about what's going on. But how will the United States respond if, in fact, something like this happens? How will other NATO members respond? This all goes back in part of the discussion and part of the debate about you know Ukraine's uh, request some time ago right now to be included in NATO, and uh, NATO has not acted on that. Uh, as we know, the whole purpose of NATO is an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, if they were a NATO member, the assumption is, is if there were an invasion, other NATO countries would be required uh, to respond in a military fashion. And uh, I'm getting the sense from some of the comments from Washington and, frankly, some of the other NATO members, uh, they're not really prepared to do that at this stage, uh, which uh, is causing a great deal of consternation, I guess, within Ukraine, uh, especially with the Russian troops uh, massing on the border as they have. So where do we go from here? And, and, and just what happens? Uh, you know, they, they talked there about the, the massive price that uh, Ukraine would pay in human loss. That's tragic in and of itself. And they talk about the uh, huge price that Russia would pay if, in fact, they invaded. But uh, the implication there is that would probably be through sanctions. 
not through any military reprisal or any military response. Uh, and, you know, Canada would follow suit, obviously, as a NATO member, uh, as to what sort of strategy is actually going to be employed. It's, it's, it's a very concerning situation. And uh, that request, by the way, to join NATO is, is part of the reason, uh, or the justification, I guess, is maybe the better word here, for Putin's actions to, to move along the border uh, because of, uh, well, the story he's telling his people in Russia, of course, is that uh, he feels as if NATO is going to invade Russia. So they're defending themselves. An interesting twist on that. Uh, to try to sort this all out, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Aura Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, you heard the comments from the White House over the weekend that uh, said that uh, the invasion uh, by the Russian troops into Ukraine could happen any time now. Uh, do you share that idea? They have certainly increased their capacity, but it's a very different thing to say that they have the capacity to invade uh, as to claim that they actually intend to invade. And I remain skeptical that Russia at the moment is irretrievably uh, tied to a policy of invading. They are trying to get the maximum concession from the West. They see cracks in the Western alliance, certainly with Germany and now with uh, Emmanuel Macron, who's doing a lot of damage to NATO's cause in many ways. And uh, Mr. Putin generally looks for really soft targets, uh, easy wins. This is his history. He may be ruthless, as I mentioned uh, before, but he's not reckless. So it depends on the signals that come from the West. It depends on the unity of the alliance. And uh, if he comes to the conclusion that there's an enormous amount of weakness, that this is a very low-risk operation, he may not resist temptation. But that's not the same thing as saying that he is uh, absolutely intending to invade. To the point about Germany, as we know, President Biden met with the well, newly installed German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, to try to talk about this in the response. Uh, let's put this in context, uh, Professor, for our listeners. Uh, Germany is... is not as hawkish on this as, as some people might have expected. Uh, but there's the matter of the gas supply uh, from Russia to uh, Eastern Europe and through to Germany uh, that I think is a major factor here. How much of a, an impact is that going to have on, on Germany's participation or even attitude towards this, this rising crisis? The official German line is that there's a history of the Second World War and that uh, consequently there's a kind of pacifist attitude. And undoubtedly that may play a role. But at the same time, what is also the reality is that Germany, which is the wealthiest uh, large economy in Western Europe and the largest economy in Europe, in fact, has not spent on defense anywhere close to 2% that they committed themselves to spending by 2024. They've allowed themselves, despite warnings over many years from America, they, they should not become dependent on Russian natural gas. They allow themselves to become dependent on natural gas. They are getting gas through Nord Stream 1, and they insisted on uh, building Nord Stream 2 together with Russia. And uh, they, uh, at the same time, um, uh, are refusing to even allow the smallest quantities of defensive weapons to be sent from Germany. So this goes beyond just dependence on natural gas. It is also a matter of protecting uh, 
their profits. Germany sells a very large number of Mercedes uh, uh, and BMW cars. In Russia, the oligarchs have lots of money. And uh, it has been uh, a policy in Germany that they have made very fine profits dealing with the Russians while the Americans provided the protection. Not the first time that, uh, that Putin has threatened, by the way, to turn the tap off. Uh, he's used that in past negotiations. Would he actually go to that extent? Would he actually carry out something like that, Professor? Well, the threat is uh, uh, that uh, if there's actual war, uh, that is what they would do. And you uh, will notice that Vladimir Putin has gone to China, uh, and uh, he was the first leader in some like two years to meet face-to-face with President Xi. And uh, they reached uh, a variety of agreements, including energy agreements. So Russia would be selling a lot more energy to China. And uh, that, uh, in Moscow's view, would uh, lessen any dependence they may have on having to sell natural gas to Europe. That would give them uh, additional leverage. So, indeed, that may happen. And Russia has benefited enormously from uh, this uh, turn by Western countries to try to save the environment, which is indeed a noble and many would argue a necessary undertaking to move to renewable energy, but that has driven up the energy prices tremendously. So whereas a little more than a year ago, Russia was getting uh, uh, 35 $40 uh, uh, for a barrel of oil, now they're getting 90 and moving to $100. That gives them extra power, extra money, extra leverage, and it emboldens them. You mentioned the the pipeline, of course. Actually, a good deal of it goes through Ukraine. A third of the Eastern European countries uh, get that that Russian uh, fuel from from that area. With the completion, Nord Stream is not online yet, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Uh, but it's, it's obviously, Germany is going to be impacted by that. Is it Russia's intention to to, to freeze Ukraine out of this whole process, so so that they're not a factor, and uh, and that would make Germany far more dependent on on what's happening with Russian fuel. But at the same time, uh, would Ukraine be less of a player then because of the... Now, they don't use that energy. I mean, they simply transport it through their country. Uh, but would an invasion have any impact on that at all and the economic impact of that pipeline? Uh, I, I think the questions uh, you're raising, the points you're making, are exactly uh, correct. That uh, for quite some time now, Ukraine and Poland, for that matter, have feared, they have objected uh, vociferously to the building of Nord Stream 2, which is essentially finished. It just needs to be certified. And it was finished uh, with basically the approval of President Biden, who canceled the pipeline the, from Canada, the Keystone Pipeline, but as a concession to Germany and as a concession to Russia, hoping that there would be better relations with Russia in the summer, uh, he indicated they would not oppose, that is, President Biden would not oppose the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which increases German dependence. It gives Ukraine much much less leverage uh, because not as much natural gas will go through Ukraine. It means that uh, uh, more gas would be shipped to Western Europe uh, and therefore there would be less uh, possibly for Ukraine. This is why you see Ukraine scrambling to produce as much of its electricity from nuclear power plants. They are working at full capacity, which is uh, uh, risky in a sense. Uh, because they uh, uh, are facing very high energy prices as well as pressure from Russia. So 
Russia has used for a long time pipeline diplomacy. This is not a surprise. Germany should not be surprised. They have pursued, sadly, a very cynical profiteering policy. And then you see President Emmanuel Macron, who's doing quite a bit of damage to the alliance um, uh, by freelancing. He is uh, saying that uh, Russia, which has, as we know, committed aggression against Ukraine in 2014, it illegally occupied Crimea, illegally annexed Crimea, despite you know, signing on to the Budapest Memorandum. Uh, Macron is saying, and he's in Moscow right now, that Russia is entitled to security uh, guarantees of some sort. And uh, Mr. Putin, of course, is praising Emmanuel Macron, calls him a quality interlocutor. But um, even some of the Western European uh, countries are extremely concerned by uh, Mr. Macron, who's a uh, supremely ambitious leader, he uh, views himself as uh, an innovative leader. Many view him as an irritating presence. I want to ask you something else. I just pivot for a second here. You, you, you talked about the impact it's going to have on North America, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we're very concerned about that. Uh, but also the influence of Russia. I mean, you know, if, if Putin is allowed to continue with his basically his military incursions, uh, Crimea, we know troops in Belarus, and perhaps now what's going to happen in Ukraine, well, that is yet to be determined. Uh, that emboldens uh, Putin, and, and we've seen what an emboldened Putin can do, uh, and, you know, through cyber activities and military activities and things of this nature. We know that uh, there are stories this weekend about well-funded mobs that are being directed to attack Canadian cities, including Ottawa, uh, you know, see what's happened over there in the last 10 days. Uh, and these are Russian-backed. In other words, these are paid insurrectionists that are basically there uh, to try to sway public opinion and, and to try to cause discontent and and, and, and problems in those communities. Uh, and emboldened Putin is, is simply going to do more of that sort of thing, isn't he? We have known for many years that uh, first the Soviet Union and then uh, when Vladimir Putin came to power, Russia has tried to intervene in one way or another in elections, whether in Europe or in North America. And they have also posed a cyber threat for a long time. And there are suspicions that some of the cyber attacks that have occurred were not just uh, random actions, but that there was some coordination from uh, the Kremlin, at the very least, uh, uh, a tacit uh, approval. So I think in many ways, the threat from Russia is real. And every time Mr. Putin is emboldened, he's likely to do more. At the same time, I would also urge some caution in terms of going down the road of various conspiracy theories. Um, Russia has indeed been playing a nefarious role. But Russia is not uh, endlessly powerful. It does not have unlimited resources. Uh, they are not in on every single action. They are not participant, uh, participants in every kind of process. And so it's very important that we, in a way, right-size Russia. Russia is not a superpower. It is a disruptive power. Uh, we can. We have the resources to counter them. The West has vastly greater resources. We need to mobilize them. But at the same time, if we build Russia up to mythical uh, portions that they are everywhere, they are involved in everything, we immobilize ourselves because it moves from respect that every country uh, deserves 
to a kind of deference where we feel that we have to appease Russia somehow. And that would be very, very dangerous. So um, unless we have really incontrovertible evidence that there is uh, Russian interference in particular protests, whether here uh, in Canada or elsewhere, we should be rather cautious about some of these theories. I, I agree totally. I mean, we have to, as I say, substantive information about this, not just speculation. If, in fact, Putin continues with this, and if, in fact, there is a, an incursion into Ukraine, uh, the concern here is is we all know that you know Putin's mused about the fact for a long time right now he'd like to to, to reconstitute the Soviet Union with you know Crimea and Ukraine and, and these other to bring them under the the, the guise of Moscow once again. Uh, if the United States does not respond militarily to this, uh, are we getting into a situation right now where somewhere down the road they're going to have to draw a line and said no more? Or, or, or does this just continue? Does, does Putin, in a small but very meaningful way, uh, continue with this aggression in, into other uh, European and, and former Soviet uh, countries? When we look at Russian demands, we have to examine them carefully because they give us a kind of roadmap to... Uh, uh, the vision that Mr. Putin has, he says uh, to the world that he's the victim. This is after, you know, attacking a sovereign mm-hmm. country and illegally annexing parts of it, and that he fears NATO. And we have to kind of deconstruct that. And is it plausible that NATO, which has very little offensive capacity, uh, where especially smaller countries like Estonia, uh, which has a total of 44 uh, uh, infantry fighting vehicles that Mr. Putin is worried about Estonian columns uh, led by these 44 um, uh, infantry fighting vehicles are on the way to Moscow, and that is his, his real concern. Uh, uh, his real concern is that he cannot afford to have Ukraine become a successful democracy on his borders because that would be an alternate model to the repressive, ultra-nationalistic kleptocracy that he's running, and he wants to stay in power. But if he could get away with conquering Ukraine, he has other demands. He's basically saying that uh, um, the enlargement of NATO, in many respects, has to be reversed, that uh, there should be restrictions on any forces that countries from the West have stationed, even on a rotating basis, in uh, the Baltic states, for example, or in Poland. We have a small number of soldiers helping to guard Latvia. Mr. Putin demands that uh, they should be withdrawn. He is demanding that there should be no further enlargement of NATO, not to Ukraine, not to Georgia. And some in the West are wavering and saying, well, you know, maybe it shouldn't happen. They're not ready anyway. But Russian actions have been aggressive not only against Eastern Europe. They have been aggressive against Northern Europe to the extent that countries such as uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, that were really very well disposed towards Moscow, have become so alarmed that they are not only increasing military spending, but two of the neutral states, Sweden and Finland, are seriously considering the possibility of whether they should join NATO. Now, will Mr. Putin then threaten to invade Finland and Sweden as well? Should they join NATO? Because if they apply for NATO membership, they meet all the criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
very, very interesting and very, very important uh, decisions to be made over the next couple of days. As always, Professor, a pleasure having you on the program to get your insights. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Professor Oral Brown, of course, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.